It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. If you're a small business owner, I've got some good news for you about the SBA loan program. Later, do you have any idea how much you're being charged in fees on your 401k? This can be an area where you're getting ripped off by your employer. And here's the craziest thing. Usually the employer doesn't even know they're ripping off their employees. So it's gone in waves where I've taken a ton of questions from people about SBA loans. Then there'll be no questions about SBA loans. And then the questions start again and all the rest. So now we're in a cycle where people are starting to ask again because payments are starting to be due on loans that people took out early in the pandemic. And I wanted to tell you something about the idle loans. The idle loans had tight caps on them and the money ran out. All, oh, economic entry disaster loan. That's what idle stands for. So the SBA, starting the second week of October, is going to be offering much larger idle loans than before. The loans are now going to be up to $2 million. Now, obviously, there are very few businesses that have the kind of revenue ongoing that it would make sense to go anywhere near that kind of loan. But the significant thing as well is that the loans taken out will give you the ability to refinance the loans you took out last year if you don't have the cash flow yet at your business, if things haven't improved enough, you're able to refi, essentially, the existing idle into a new idle. And then you may be in a position where you won't have to make a payment for two more years. So this may seem like you're throwing... Um, a cinder block to a drowning person <laughs> because if you've got debt already and you can't pay it, they're saying, okay, well, just don't worry about it now. And you, by the way, you want to borrow more, you can borrow more. You have to know your own business and your situation, whether it might make sense for you to roll the debt you have forward and potentially even take on more debt. The other thing is people who took out the PPP loans, the Payroll Protection Program loans, the deadline is approaching for a lot of people who took those out to apply for forgiveness or you have to start paying those back. And forgiveness was something that wasn't working at all, the process, but now more and more loans are making it through the administrative process for forgiveness and a lot of people thought that it meant all or nothing, that you either get your loans completely forgiven or not at all. But the reality is that you may get substantial, thorough, or partial relief, just depending on how you fit in the formula for what were eligible expenses and what you're eligible to have treated as essentially a grant instead of a loan where that portion of your loan is forgiven. Let's say you took out um, 
a $200,000 PPP loan and you had expenses that qualified for forgiveness of 125000 So the 125 goes away. You're not taxed on it. The 75000 that remains, you have to either pay off or start paying interest on it. The interest is at an extremely low rate. I think it's only 1% or something. It's a very, very low rate. But busy running your own business, you may not have remembered. You have to apply for the loan forgiveness. If the amount of your loan is under 150000 there's a very simple portal for applying for loan forgiveness. And lenders that were unwilling to process loan forgiveness applications earlier this year now are. Krista? This is from Scott in Georgia. I am a small business owner and we have accumulated $100,000 in cash assets with no physical assets or debt. Where would you recommend that I invest these corporate funds? Scott, what I recommend in a case where there's excess funds available in a small business, you don't have a need for these funds right away or for a period of time is that you open a, a corporate account at a discount stock brokerage. They may require that you have a personal investment account also, but then you're able to invest the $100,000 in short-term money instruments that have minimal risk uh, or just straight in money funds offered that will have no risk and almost no return. But uh, having the idle cash used to mean you could put money in cash management with a brokerage and earn a decent return on your money. But with interest rates on savings uh, so crushed right now in the market, you're not going to earn a great deal on it, but you would earn potentially something going into uh, some form of cash management or money market kind of fund with one of the discount brokers. And you can set it up where you have check writing privileges right from the account at no fee, whereas you need the funds for operating purposes for the business, you can typically just write a check against the holdings that you have at the discount broker. From Ron in North Carolina, we are recently retired and are considering buying a used Class C RV next year, but only after renting one as a trial experience to be sure that RV vacationing is right for us. Can you tell us whether staying at an RV park or a four-star hotel is the cheaper way to vacation after all expenses are factored in? So, Ron, traveling by an RV is not necessarily a way to save money, but to have a, a very different travel experience on the open road and in rural areas and at national and state parks. With parking an RV, the RV business has really gone like the hotel business where there are very, very basic RV parks and state parks where you can park an RV really, really cheaply to very luxurious RV parks, including membership-based ones that cost a lot of money to park your RV at. So it is not something you can easily compare the dollars and cents the way you're asking me to compare it, because if you you could answer the question the way you wanted, if you did a very basic 
RV park experience or a state park where you can park an RV versus staying in a four-star hotel, the RV is going to be a cheaper way to go. But if you want a luxurious environment at RV parks, then I don't think you're going to find that there's money saving using the RV as a vacation tool. This is from Sue Tan. We purchased a vacation club in April of 2021 and did not expect how hard it would be to book a place that we want. There are fees on everything. We just found out about the high yearly maintenance fee and we will lose the point if we don't use it in a certain period of time. They said they are not a timeshare. How can we get out of us this? Clark, please help us. Sue Tan, I am really, really sorry. This is potentially worse than a timeshare that you're in. These points programs, they sell more points than there are points that can be used often. And so you have something that unless you have absolute flexibility in your schedule and the rest, it's use it or lose it. And without that flexibility and destination or date, you just lose it. Now, you may have an ability to sell this back to them at a loss because this is one of the big brand name point sellers. And this may be a way that you can score money otherwise. But I'm really worried that you are stuck with this because these, just like timeshares, the point sellers are very, very difficult to get any value out of them when you try to sell them. In fact, it's common that you have to pay somebody to take over your obligation. And I'm going to look around and see if I do have any other strategies I can recommend to you. And if I do, I will mention that later on the podcast for you and for the benefit of others. From Nancy in California, I'm one of those wives who quotes Clark Howard when proposing financial or investment changes to my husband. Recently, a listener asked a great question about asset allocation between U.S. and international funds. My question is whether you were referring to international, including U.S., or global, ex- excluding U.S. funds in your 50-50 asset split. And what percentages are international bonds versus international stocks? I only have these questions because you've saved us so much money and we have more to invest. Consider this a bouquet from both of us to you. Nancy, thank you very much. And I have to be careful answering a question like this because we're not an investment advice show. We give just general guidelines. And a lot of the lowest cost funds involve doing a total stock market index fund for U.S. and doing an international index fund that's ex-U.S., meaning not including U.S. funding. And that's how you get to that 50-50 split. Now, there are people who believe in a three-fund or four-fund environment, and you do the um, stock portion of your investing that way where you do 50% U.S., 50% international, not including U.S. And then with your bond portion, whatever percent that would be, that you also do a split with it of domestic bonds and international. The reason people have been interested in that lately is because interest rates in the United States are so extremely low 
that they want some foreign bond uh, exposure in their portfolio. But again, we're getting into more and more um, specific investing, which I have to be very careful doing because it depends on your own personal situation what you should do. If you read what some of the Bogleheads say, if you're not familiar with the Bogleheads, I think it would be good, Nancy, to, to read about these are the ultimate investment nerds in the United States that have strong um, connection to John Bogle, the late great founder of Vanguard. And Bogle is spelled B-O-G-L-E. And the Bogleheads, which you'll find online, have very strong opinions about how many funds it takes to build a well-diversified portfolio and what those should be. It is not one that you'll see an instant answer, but you'll feel a direction from seeing the arguing that goes on among the Bogleheads. And do you know, speaking of investing, that 401k accounts have two different kinds of fees, and one of them is one that most people don't even know exists. And I'm going to talk about that straight ahead. 401ks are one of the main ways that most Americans invest in some form or another. It is something that behavioral economists love because once you're enrolled in a 401k, it's automatic. We're so often We'll have the best of intentions to save money for a rainy day, save money for retirement, save money for buying a house, and we just can't seem to get around to it. So with a 401k, as you enroll, or if an employer auto-enrolls you, you're saving money before the money comes to you, and it builds a habit. But do you know that, according to a study by the GAO, two-thirds, approximately, of people in 401ks don't know about all the fees they're paying to be in that 401k. So in a 401k, you pay the cost for the investments you're in, whatever that is, and hopefully very low. But you also pay for the administration of that 401k. And those costs can be through the roof. And so it can end up being much more expensive for you to invest in a 401k than it is in your own Roth IRA or traditional IRA. Because with your own IRA, you can open it with one of the ultra-low-cost companies and avoid all those junk fees because there aren't any with a low-cost company investing in an IRA, a traditional, or a Roth. But in the 401k, if you're with a giant employer, the fees for administering the plan are generally minuscule, and the costs of the actual investments themselves usually will be very low. So it's a very efficient way to save for retirement. But if you're with an employer that isn't big, you're paying first the fees for the investments and second, often a bigger fee for the actual administration of the plan. Now, it's up to an employer who pays those fees. 
do you know that an employer can pay none of them? All of them are in between. So we have uh, 21, 23 employees, something like that, in my company. The fees, because we're a small plan for administering the plan, would really eat in the employees' returns. So I, as an employer, absorb all those administrative costs. So the employees, if they're in the really low-cost fund choices in our plan, are investing virtually for free. Thank you. Well, but On behalf I, of all of us and for that 6% match. Okay, so that's the other thing. I am like an old-school what they called paternalistic employer. I know how important it is for people to save, so I automatically enroll everybody. They can opt out, but I automatically enroll them when they come to work for me. And then I offer a dollar-for-dollar match on the first 6%. So if they're saving 6, they get a 6% match, so they're automatically saving 12% of their pay. And so I do that because I know how hard it is for people to get in the habit of saving. And I believe in it so much that I absorb those fees. A lot of companies can't afford to absorb the fees. Or here's the weird thing. You would not believe how often people who run smaller companies have no idea the fees that they're paying on their own 401k for their own money for their future or in turn what their employees are having to pay in fees. And the fees can be giant. So plans are required to disclose them. They're required to. But usually you'll get something in the mail that's written in a way by the lawyers that who can figure it out. When you get something saying important plan documents, I want you to read them. And if the expenses are more than half a percent for you for the investment cost and for the administrative costs, you want to stay in the plan up to the employer match, and then the rest of what you do should be in your own IRA or Roth IRA. Now, if you know your behavior and left to your own devices, you're not going to get the money in the Roth, then Continue to contribute to the 401k just to get it done. But I'm telling you, these expenses are like a poison on your plan. It's nothing like those horrendous 403b plans, most of most of the 403b plans that are available to teachers and nonprofits and those at um, hospitals many times. But the fees do make a difference and affect how much money you're going to have at the end of the road because the expenses over a working lifetime will greatly reduce how much money you have to live on down the road. And if you work for an employer that has less than 100 employees, it's not at all unusual that the administrative expenses will exceed 1% of the money you have in your plan every year which will set you way back on your retirement goals. Krista? Here's a question from Cindy in Florida. How do the credit card companies recoup the purchase incentives and cash back they give us? 
since creditors have recently been reevaluating their extension of credit and closing accounts, is there any chance that my creditor will close my account because they don't appear to be making a profit as I always pay the account in full each month? Cindy, in banking circles, you are referred to as a deadbeat. Dead yeah, somebody who pays their balances in full. So the credit card company lives off of all the fees that are charged to merchants through the process. And then the interest paid by a lot of the cardholders. The credit card companies with reward cards are willing to give the rewards in miles or cashback or whatever because it tends to be a customer who charges very high volume in a month, very high dollar amount of volume in a month. And so you are, even as a deadbeat, still profitable. Plus, they benefit from consumer behavior where there are people who intend to pay their balances in full and pay no interest, but either occasionally or regularly don't pay their balances in full and are paying interest. I have never heard of a situation where a credit card company fired you for being a deadbeat. Generally, what they fire you for is they're worried you won't pay back your balance because something shows up in their formulas or in credit scoring that makes them worry you're not going to be good for the money that they're lending you on the card. This is from Lynn in New York. After learning more about security online, is PayPal still safe? I'm very concerned. Lynn, PayPal is any other electronic platform of paying money or receiving money faces the risk from hackers. PayPal is not necessarily an organization that presents more risk for you than others. I have a PayPal account, but the rule that I recommend is that you tie in payment apps. You know, PayPal owns Venmo, Square owns the Cash app, the banks own Zelle. All these platforms create risk for you in the event that a hacker invades. And that's why I recommend that with various third-party payment platforms that you tie them into an account that does not put your regular money at risk that you need to use to pay rent, mortgage, car payment, etc. From David in California, Clark recently called out TIAA for their bank-like activities, and Clark's 529 plan guide was also recently updated. The California ScholarShare 529 plan, which is administered by TIAA, remains on the dean's list. Should Clark Smart Californian parents be concerned about their child's 529 plans? David, I watch TIAA like a hawk these days because of the scandals that have been part of TIA for a while. But the California 529 remains a fantastic plan. It is extremely low cost, and there's a real public eye on it. And I'm very doubtful that TIAA or TIA, whichever you want to call them, would mess around with people's college money because there is such a focus on the California ScholarShare 529. So I would feel safe as a Californian having your kids' 529 money in the California plan. 
And from Mike in Washington, what site do you recommend for checking credit scores and credit reports? So Mike, Credit Karma has kind of a monopoly on this as far as being something that is a free way to keep a checkup on your credit. And Credit Karma makes your their money from recommending products to you, credit cards and various loans and stuff, because of what they know about you. Uh, and the credit score you get from them is an approximation is not a fair Isaac FICO score, but you can see your credit report from two of the credit bureaus whenever you wish. You can see your credit score whenever you want for free. But you also can see your credit score on the FICO scale from most of the credit cards you have by signing into the online portal or using the app for your credit card. They will normally have an option for you to see your credit score whenever you wish. And I should say the credit score. There are multiple credit scores for each of us, even with FICO, based on which credit bureau they're gathering the data from and which formula from FICO they're using. But if you just want to know your credit scores, looking at what's available through your credit card companies is one of the best ways to do so for nothing. If you want to see the reports, once a year, normally right now, once a week, you can see your credit reports for free at annualcreditreport.com. That's a pandemic-related thing that's coming to an end soon. But you still can see them free once a year at annualcreditreport.com, even when that's over. But if you want to see them regularly and not pay, that's where Credit Karma fits in the picture. And if we didn't get to your question or you want one-on-one -on -one advice, do you know we've got that for you for free from our Team Clark Consumer Action Center? It's been around since February of 1993. And we answer your one-on-one -on -one questions for free Monday through Friday from 10 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon Eastern Time. You can talk with a member of our team at 636 Four nine Clark.